maybe uh, you're a little skeptical. Maybe you're a little skeptical about this whole story of Jesus rising from the dead. We're so glad you're here. Um, I'm a very skeptical person. I don't believe everything I read. I don't believe everything I see on TV. Um, I'm a whole lot more skeptical than probably most people in the room would imagine. But I have bought into this story a hook, line, and sinker. And I just want to talk about that today just a little bit. Let's start with the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 1. And it says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, Mary Magdalene was Jesus's most famous female follower. But on that early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene was convinced that Jesus was dead. You see, Mary believed just what most people believe about Jesus. He was a good teacher. He was a good man, a revolutionary. He introduced a brand of Christianity the world had never seen, maybe from God, a miracle worker. But on that Sunday morning, Mary who loved him deeply and dearly. Mary, who was closer to him than you and I ever will be. This woman was healed of seven demons by Jesus. On that Easter Sunday morning, she believed that he was dead. Now, you know the story. He was arrested on Thursday evening, uh, went through an illegal trial all Thursday night, early Friday morning, He was bounced back and forth like a ping pong ball, Jesus was, from some of the high priests to the King Herod to Pontius Pilate. Twice, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, tried to release him. And so finally, when the crowds began to shout and crucify and there was going to be a riot, Pontius Pilate sentenced him to death. And Jesus was on a cross, on a Roman cross, And he had spikes through his hands, and he had nails through his feet. And about 9 o'clock on Friday morning, Jesus was on the cross. From 9 to noon, it was kind of a normal day. But the Bible says at noon to 3, darkness covered the face of the earth. And so Jesus was on the cross for a total of six hours. At 3 o'clock then, the Sabbath was coming, and Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus asked for Jesus' body. Now, this is unique because it was against the law for a body that had been crucified to be buried. The bodies were dumped into the city dump. And so we assume that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, bribed Pontius Pilate for the body. He takes the body, and he and Nicodemus have just a few hours or maybe 90 minutes to embalm Jesus' body. And they drain him of all bodily fluids, and they begin to anoint him with spices, and they quickly wrap him up kind of like a mummy, put him inside the tomb, and roll the stone in place. What's so interesting about this story is that Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, they all were convinced that Jesus was maybe what some of you think, a good man, a good teacher, 
a miracle worker, maybe from God, but they were all convinced on that Sunday and Friday and Saturday that Jesus was dead. Nobody thought that Jesus was coming back. Look at the very next verse. The very next verse says, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Now, John is the author of this book, and he's the one that Jesus loved. He's kind of got some ego thing going on here, if you ask me. You know, Jesus loves me. Yes, he loves me more than you. You know, I think that's funny, personally. But, but anyway, so, so Mary comes running. Mary doesn't go shouting, he's alive, he's alive. Mary comes running because she assumes someone stole the body. So she comes running to Simon Peter and to John. This is John, the Gospel of John dude, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken him, the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know. We really don't know where they've put him. And so Mary, Simon Peter, John believed just what a lot of people believe about Jesus. Good man, good teacher. But on that Sunday morning, they all believed he was dead. Now, the Gospel of Luke fills in a few more details for us. And in Luke chapter 24, Luke gives us a couple of other names. And we, we learn that it was not just Mary, but it was Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and, and others with them who told this to the apostles. Now, why are the women coming that early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body? Why would they do this? Maybe the women thought the guys didn't do a good job. I'll take the high road and say probably they realized they didn't have much time. But think about this for just a minute. Who would you love that deeply and that dearly that you would go into a tomb and you would unwrap the body and you would re-anoint and reapply about 75 pounds of spices, and you would wrap them back. Who in your life would you love that much? Maybe one of your children? I thought about asking Danita, and then I thought, no, I don't want to hear the answer to that. She, <laughs> she'd probably say, let's just, you know, roll with it. You're dead. It's good. I'm good with that, you know. I didn't want to hear the answer to that. Who would you love that much? Mary was so in love with Jesus, but Mary, on that Sunday morning, was convinced that somebody stole the body, and he was dead. Look at the next verse. But when they did not believe the women, I'm sorry, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Well, of course they did. Of course it seemed like nonsense. All of us in the room would think the same thing. It's nonsense for a person who's had no brain activity for a couple of days to be able to live again. It's nonsense for a person who's had all their bodily fluids to be drained to to live again. It's absolute nonsense for someone who's been wrapped up like a mummy for all these days to ever have life and breath again. Of course it's nonsense. So here's what happens with Peter. Look at the next little section here with Peter. Peter, however, got up. He ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves, and he went away shouting, he's alive, he's alive. No, I just made that up. That's not in the Bible. (laughs) Thursday night, I was at the Rays game. 
And the lady who does the slides was imputing this into the computer. And so she's texting me, can you call me? And so I call her about the fourth inning over by the food court. Every pastor knows where the food court is uh, at the race, baseball games. So I call her up and she said, I can't find this verse anywhere in the Bible. She said, what translation are you using? And I forgot to tell her that I was just kind of making up the verse. And she'd studied the scriptures, you know, and she said, you're messing with me. Here, here's what it really says in the next verse. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself. He wondered to himself, what in the world happened? Now think about this. Not a single one of these guys thought Jesus was coming back from the dead. Now, now if you're Catholic, and, and Peter's your guy, right? Peter's the guy. Wouldn't you expect, you know, Peter to be able to say, I got this figured out. I know exactly what's going to happen. Peter sees all this and he goes away. What in the world is happening here? Nobody, nobody expected this. The first century followers, let's watch this next slide. The first century followers, they documented their unbelief. I love that. I love the fact that they documented their unbelief. Why? Because nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, not their closest followers. Now, now get, get this. These are the people who were up close and personal to Jesus. These were the people who didn't like read the Sermon on the Mount. These were the people who heard the Sermon on the Mount. These were not people like you and I who read the story of the prodigal son. They were there when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. These are not the people who read about the parable of the sower and four types of soil. These were the people that were on the hillside with Jesus. You know, you and I read that cool story where Jesus takes a little boy's lunch, five pieces of barley and probably two tilapia fish, and he feeds all these people. They were there. The guys were there in the boat when the squall came up and the eight to ten foot waves took place, and they were all, you know, freaked out for their lives. And Jesus gets up and he kind of does the Titanic thing. You know, maybe that's where they got it in the movie. I don't know. But, but Jesus does that thing at the front. And he says, peace be still. And now they're really freaked out because somebody has the power. They were there, but none of them, none of them believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It's amazing to me. Do you know why all four gospel writers present Jesus as close as followers as bewildered, confused, and afraid? Because they were bewildered, confused, and afraid. <laughs> now you think about this. If you're going to make up a story, if you're going to make up a story, and by the way, if, if your hero is dead, and you've got to keep the party going, you've got to keep the sequel going, you've got to have part two going, I mean, you wouldn't write the story where they all lost faith. You wouldn't write the story where they were all cowards. You wouldn't write a story like this where they all ran away, locked their doors, and hid. You wouldn't write that kind of a story. But that's exactly the story that the Bible says. That makes it a little bit more credible to me. Because the Bible portrays these people as bewildered, confused, and afraid. Not a single one of them expected Jesus to come back 
from the dead. And they were there. They were with him. They saw him. If you were going to make this up, and you've got to keep this thing going, you're going to bring the attention to yourself. You, you can't have like your lead guy like Peter like, like freaking out and, and, and denying three times that he even knew who Jesus was. I mean, your lead dog can't be you know, intimidated by a middle school girl and say, you know, I don't even know who he is. And the third time he curses. That's not what you do if you keep the party going. You don't do that. Here's the kind of story that you tell. If you're going to concoct a story, you tell this story. Nobody believed, but I did. Everybody ran away except me and John. Everybody lost their faith except James and Mary Magdalene. In fact, we all camped out on that Saturday night. Me and Mary and James and John and and, and I'm Peter. Man, we, we camped out, and we brought a choir and a band. And we started chanting just as that sun was coming up over the mountain. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. And that stone just blows up, and Jesus comes rising out of there. And we had to put on our Ray-Ban sunglasses because it was so bright. That's the kind of story you tell. You don't tell the story where... John, do you know what happened? No, I don't know what happened. Peter, do you know what happened? No, I don't know what happened. And everybody goes home. Everybody locks the door. Everybody's scared to death. Now, look, you got to wrestle with this. You see, because you've been taught that when, you con- when it comes to your faith, that you have to, like, leave your brain, like, in a closet somewhere. And you've been taught maybe that it's all emotional and you've got to like get all juiced up and jazzed up over emotional stories. That, that's not the place to start. This is the place to start. If you're going to write a story about how we've got to keep the thing going, you see, that's what everybody else does. Everybody else focuses on the teachings of the founders. But that's not what Christianity does. That's not what Christianity did. Weeks later, just weeks after the resurrection, people are pouring into the city streets of Jerusalem. And the stories are not once upon a time Jesus did. If you read the book of Acts, they're not even focused on the teachings of Christ. Now stick with me for this. Those of you that are a little skeptical, hang with me. See, the book of Acts isn't focused on the teachings of Jesus. That's what every other world religion does because their founders are dead. It doesn't matter if it's Buddhism, Mohammedism, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard, Charles Taz Russell. It doesn't matter. Every other group focuses on strictly the teachings. The book of Acts doesn't do that. The book of Acts is a 30-year history of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. The book of Acts isn't talking about the prodigal son. The book of Acts isn't talking about four types of sower. The the book of Acts isn't talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what they said. The book of Acts is talking about not once upon a time Jesus lived, but the book of Acts is talking about once upon a time. Here's how Jesus rose from the dead, and we saw him. We are witnesses of this. How do you explain a coward to becoming courageous? How do you explain all these guys going home, freaking out, locking their doors, running for cover, and now they're standing before the very jury who convicted Jesus to death, and they're saying, look, dudes, you condemned him. 
You're at odds with God. How do you explain that courage? And they all went to their death, except the Apostle John, who almost did and was exiled on the, on the island of Patmos for a long number of years. How do you explain that? you got to wrestle with that. See, I don't think you leave your brain at home. I think you engage your brain. That's where it starts. It starts like right here. And so just a few weeks later, all these people are pouring into the city streets of Jerusalem, and they're proclaiming they've seen the resurrected Jesus. We have 11 accounts in history of post-resurrection appearances. We don't know how many there were. History records 11. There may have been 50. There may have been five. We don't know. But history records 11. And one of those really cool stories is a lame guy is outside of the temple. And Peter and John are going to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for prayer. And the lame guy's asking for money. And Peter and John, they're not going to give him any money. But what they did was they said, in the name of Jesus, basically, we're going to heal you. And the guy was healed, and it draws a crowd. And any time a preacher gets a crowd, he gets excited. Look what Peter does in, in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Peter's got a crowd of people now. This is the same Peter who ran, who hid, who lost his faith, who denied Christ three times. A middle school girl shoved him in a corner, basically. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. The crowd who shouted, crucify, crucify, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. Next verse. You disowned the holy and the righteous one. You see, before they saw the resurrection of Jesus, good man, good teacher, great moral person, an incredible brand of compassion. But now... You killed the righteous one. You asked that a murderer, this was Barabbas, be released to you. Verse 15. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. Now, how do we know this? Because we're witnesses. We're witnesses. We're witnesses of this. What changed the world was not the teachings of Jesus. They were great, great teaching. Don't get me wrong. I love the teachings of Christ. That's not what changed the world. What changed the world was an event on Sunday morning when a stone rolled away and Mary goes to the tomb. I don't know what happened to him. Somebody stole his body. Peter and John go to the tomb. I don't know what happened. Do you know what happened? I don't have a clue what happened. But when they saw Jesus, it changed everything. Now you've got to wrestle with this. You got to come to grips with this. So this same story now gets the jury involved. The same religious leaders who condemned Jesus to death now get involved. Caiaphas was the uh, high priest. Annas, his father-in-law, who was the high priest, who still had all the power. The the the, the uh, Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, all these guys are now involved with this case. It's a case with Peter and John. Look at chapter 4. Here's what happened. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Caiaphas is nine feet in front of him. Annas is eight feet away from him. These are the same people who condemned Jesus to die. Now here's Peter, the guy that lost his faith. 
Here's Peter. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked, look at this. If we're being asked how he was healed, this is Peter's out. He's got an out right here. Well, yeah, guys, uh, you know, John and I were there, and the guy was, you know, asking if we could help him up, and, you know, we didn't really pray. It wasn't really a miracle. We just kind of helped him up, and his legs plopped down, and, I don't know, he just started walking. He had an out. He could have got out of this whole thing. Look what he says next. I want you to know this. You want to know how the guy was healed? You want to know how, he, how a layman could walk? It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's eight feet in front of them, whom you crucified. Caiaphas, you are at odds with God. Annas, you are at odds with God. Members of the high priest's family, you are at odds with God. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain the courage of these guys? They'd seen him. They'd seen a resurrected Jesus. It's by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Next verse. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's why we teach this. That's why we want you to come to Christ. That's why we talk about Jesus' blood, how he offered his blood to help you. That's why we talk about how we've got sins and we've got issues and we've got problems. And we all know that. We all get that. We all know that even on our best day, we can't attain the perfection and the righteousness of God. And we know that we don't have our best day every day. We know we've had some really bad days. And if you're over about six years of age, you all get the fact that we've sinned and we've made some incredible mistakes. We've lied. We've stolen. We've committed sexual immorality. We've betrayed. We've done all these kinds of things that we know, we know we're in need of a Savior. And so he says to these jury, there's salvation of no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. And then verse 13 says this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, you're darn right. That, that was a tipping point. That tipped the scales right there. They weren't there on that Friday. They weren't there on that Thursday. But now just weeks later, not 75 or 90 years, weeks later, they're right there. They realized that these were ordinary dudes. They were unschooled, ordinary men, that they were astonished that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I think you got to start with your head. And if you've been to churches that always start with emotion, I'm really, I apologize for that. Because I think it starts right here. And I don't get the whole emotion thing and trying to teach you stuff that really isn't valid and right and talk you into stuff. I don't get that. But I think you need to think through this. Is this real? Is this true? Is there credibility to the story? But then it has to become personal. Then it has to come become, become, becomes you. 
And so we move from our head then up here. It has to drop about 18 inches into our heart. And that's the perk. That's the best part about Christianity is that, that I have a Savior who died for me. I have a Savior who took my laundry list of junk and he shed his blood for all my stuff. And you have the same thing. You have a Savior who died for you so that you could have your sins forgiven. And that's why the book of Hebrews, and stick with me on this, that's why the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the great high priest. And the high priest means bridge builder. Say that with me. Bridge builder. One more time. Bridge builder. And so Jesus is the bridge builder. He bridges the gap between me and God. There's a pretty big gap between me and God. Most of you are in the room already knew that. Those of you that are guests, I had you hoodwinked for just a second. But Jesus is that great high priest, and he bridges that gap. This is why the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says this. It says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly. It's personal. This faith we profess is personal because he forgave me of my stuff and forgave you. Verse 15, he says, For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. We are. But he never sinned. That's why his blood can forgive you and forgive me. And then here's the personal part. Here's the perk. The next verse, verse 16, says this. So let us approach God's throne then. we got this great high priest who's built the bridge. Let us approach this throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. Now, mercy means God withholding his hand of judgment. So we come to God, and God says, okay, you deserve punishment, but I'm not going to give it to you because of Christ. I'm going to withhold the hand of mercy. But I love this next part. And find grace to help us in our time of need. I am in so much need for God's grace. And I don't mean that God winks at my sin. That's not what I'm talking about. This, this little word here for grace is talking about he gives you the ability to live for him. So let me camp out on that word ability and grace for just a second. So you come to God when you have a need. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to do this. I've broken this relationship. I need your ability to mend this together. I need a better job. I need a different job. I need wisdom. I need your will. I need direction. I'm not really sure how to proceed. This is the personal part about your relationship with Christ, that you and I get to approach his throne of grace and ask for help and help and help and ability and ability and ability, and we do it with confidence. Show me what to do. Teach me what to do. Tell me what to do. I need your ability to do, and you just start filling in the blanks. This past Friday, we had a called fast in our church, and so we all fasted for the day and then broke the fast on on Good Friday night. And uh, most of you came at 5 o'clock so you could break the fast early. That was smart, actually. I thought that was wise. Um, But uh, Friday, 
I ask you to do three things. I ask you to look back, ask you to look around, and I ask you to look forward. And the look back section of the fast was, how did you get to where you are? What pieces did God put in place in your spiritual journey? And so, so the looking back part was kind of at breakfast time, and because we're not eating at breakfast. And so Tanina and I are actually sitting next to each other, and I'm not a journaler. I, she's a great journaler, but I decided to try to journal my looking back and who were the people that God put in my life and how did I get to where I am today. And so I actually went all the way back to when I was about five years old. And I could remember sitting in church with my grandparents, Grandma and Grandpa Brown. It was at Roberts Park United Methodist Church, downtown Indianapolis, Indiana, and I was bored to tears. And I was taking the hymn book and I was flapping it so it would make a noise because I was hoping the preacher would get the hint to wrap the thing up, you know, because he was awful, or at least I thought he was awful. And so it's really funny that I'm a preacher today if you know the whole story. But, but I, 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 I started journaling all the different people as I look back, I came up with 50. There were 50 different people in my life up to this point in my life who have somehow poured into me in a significant way. And then at lunchtime, since we weren't eating lunch, we were to look around. And, and that was for this. That was to find grace, ability to help us in our time of need. And so we get out the dry erase board. We got this giant dry erase board and we've had these family meetings now for you know 20 years with our kids and I don't think they really liked any of them until about the last five years it's hilarious now they go and get the dry erase board and then I just look at each other like are you kidding this is too good to be true by the way all my kids were at first service I thought Jesus was going to come again they were all here by about seven o'clock so it didn't happen but I thought it might happen they were all here early so we start writing down, you know, our names, and Erica's 24, and Ethan's 23, and Emily's 17, and I'm 53. I'll tell you, Denise's 50. I don't care. I'll, she, she, she's not in the room, so just don't tell her. But anyway, so she, she's 50, and I'm 53. So, so we're writing down our names, and, and it's like, okay, what are our most pressing? Erica, this part in your life at 24, what's the most pressing part? And we just start listing the different needs. What are the most pressing needs? Because you see, we get to approach the throne of grace. Ethan, you're, he's now touring. He was here last week to let his worship led us with the word. He's now touring. He's got different gigs and bands and things going. So Ethan, what are the most pressing needs? Emily, you're 17. You're going to graduate from high school. You're going to go off. Well, Danita, Kurt. So we got them all on the board. And then we just spent time just praying. We were hungry anyway. We just spent time praying. Because we get to approach the throne of grace. And he gives us ability, supernatural ability in life. So it, 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 it is head, but it's heart. It's heart. It's heart. At some point in your life, you need to move from believe that to trust in. You see, Mary... Peter and John and all those guys, they believed that. He was a miracle worker, great teacher, revolutionary. But they had to move from believe that to trust in, and so do you. And I can't help you anymore. I've helped you as much as I can help you right now. you got to move 
from believe that to trust in. And I think if you look at the evidence, I think if you look at the story, you may decide to reject Jesus. You may decide that. But you can't decide to reject Jesus based on a lack of intellectual, empirical evidence. You may decide to reject him because you want to be God and you don't want to submit and you don't want to surrender. You may do that. But you can't say there's not enough evidence. There's over 11 post-resurrection historical appearances of the resurrected Savior. So, I'm asking you this morning to move from believe that good man, good teacher, to putting your trust in the Savior of the world. And we do what's called a a salvation prayer. It just kind of gets you going, gets you started on that. We do baptisms next weekend at Honeymoon Island Beach. Right after the early service, a father and a son were down here. and They asked me about baptism next week. I'm going to baptize both of them. And and, and Honeymoon Island Beach, the Gulf of Mexico next weekend. Maybe it's time for you to be baptized into Christ. It's the greatest event in all of history. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. Go out to the guest services desk and sign up. And we'll baptize you next Sunday afternoon. But if you've never given your life to Christ, I'm asking, he's asking that you move from believe that to put in your trust, to put in your trust in him. And we're going to say this prayer with you. So if you'd stand at this time, ask our prayer partners to come down front. And if you if you say this, we'll all say this out loud, but if, if this is your first time, this is your day, this is your moment. This is when the angels in heaven are getting ready to high-five and fist-pump each other, okay? So, so we're going we're gonna to come around you and say this with you, but this may be the first time you've ever moved from believing that to trusting in. Let's say it together. Are we ready? Are we ready? All right, here we go. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I am so grateful that you are able and willing to forgive me of all my sins. I confess that you are the Son of God, and at this moment, I give my whole life to you. Thank you for allowing me to become a Christian and to live with you forever. Amen. And if you made that profession of faith, let one of our prayer partners know that, pray with you, pray for you, pray over you. Go to the guest services desk if you've never been baptized. Go sign up for Christian baptism today. Um, Come back. Come back. Come back next week. Um, I'm going to talk about money next week. I'm not talking about giving. Gotcha. Gotcha. Not talking about giving. I'm talking about money. Jesus talks more about money than any other subject in the Bible. And we're going to have a frank and honest discussion about money. Only the courageous need to show up next weekend. Jesus how great you are. We honor you, our resurrected Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.